You're listening to Geek Cred, featuring Jeff LaPere from Pure Onage and Space Janitors. Hello, Internet. I'm Steve Rickyberg, and welcome to Geek Cred, the podcast that delivers in-depth, behind-the-scenes interviews about everything geek. On this episode, I am pleased to introduce Jeff LaPere. Welcome to Geek Cred. Thank you. So, Jeff, tell me a little bit about yourself and about your background. What is the origin story of Jeff LaPere? Oh, that's going way back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to go back to the 70s? I don't know that far. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I started making web content, I guess you'd call it, uh, back in 2004. Started with a show called Pure Onage. And it was a hobby. You know, we started making videos online. We played a lot of video games and started making a show about video games and about sort of our take on gamer culture and uh, what people are like online. And uh, starring Jared Kale as Jeremy, who is the, the owner, uh, a very talented game player who pretty much lives his life online. And, uh, you know, we did that for a number of years. Uh, the show grew into a full-time job. And then it turned into a TV series uh, uh, with Showcase in Canada and ABC Australia for one season. It was canceled, unfortunately. Boo. So then we sort of thought, oh, what are we doing with our lives now? Uh, we sort of fell into this entertainment business in a, in a weird way online. We continued to play a lot of video games. And uh, so I started uh, making another show called uh, Space Janitors with Davin Langell, who was a co-producer on Pure Onage. And uh, that is now airing on Geek and Sundry, which is uh, Felicia Day's YouTube channel. In its second season, uh, we're halfway through releasing the season. And uh, yeah, we've had a lot of positive feedback on sort of uh, epic space comedy starring a couple janitors that clean up on a Death Star-like space station. And uh, we sort of hit on sci-fi tropes and make fun of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica. And uh, all the while having our own universe, our own uh, rich universe and, and characters that we've developed, sort of looking at the other side of uh, the anti-hero, I guess you would say. <laughs> Quite literally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the hero so has no of... <laughs> idea this guy exists. Yeah. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun with that show, too. Um, and uh, also things that are going on. Uh, in Jeff Lapeerland is we've uh, raised some Kickstarter. Uh, so I'm not actually Kickstarter. It's called Indiegogo. It's a Kickstarter-like service that works in Canada, and uh, we are producing a Pure Orange movie, so a feature film, which we'll start shooting uh, in July. So yeah, uh, we've been busy. I don't know what else I can tell you. I definitely covered a lot of bases there. While Space Janitors is kind of your current focus, in my, in my mind, this really did all start with Pure Onage. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you kind of touched on it, but tell me more about Pure Onage and how it started. I mean, this was way back in 2004, before the idea of, I mean, the idea of a web series didn't really even exist. This was before YouTube. Yeah, it was before YouTube. YouTube started in 2005. And um, DivX compression was a new thing. You know, the idea of putting videos online and having them be small enough to share, you know, the uh, online video compression. There was all this technology that came together at the right time mm -hmm. to do video online, not streaming yet. So streaming didn't exist So uh, for video. Uh, so, you know, we would, you know, I borrowed a camera from the university library and, you know, bought a $5 tape and we shot our first episode of Pure Onage. And that's how really how it started was a no budget production uh, a lot of people are doing this now, are doing the no no to low budget type stuff, putting videos online. But it was it was something that 
uh, you know, circumventing a traditional broadcaster was something that was brand new and nobody had done it. Well, not very few people had done it there. You know, there was Homestar Runner, Red versus Blue. There's a few other online Yeah, shows. I was thinking about it. Like, what else would be qualified, would be uh, labeled as a web series that existed back then? That was really all I could come up with, Red versus Blue and Homestar Runner. And that was really kind of it. It's true. So, you know, we, we looked at them and we kind of looked at what they were doing and uh, didn't really think that we would ever be doing anything like that. Um, you know, we just were making videos for fun. But it ended up turning into a big thing, you know, because it was a big problem. How do you get the episodes out there? The bandwidth was expensive. You know, you couldn't just put it on a server and then you get a big bill for $5,000 for all the bandwidth you're using from your internet service provider or hosting provider. So, you know, we had people that worked at data centers that were fans and that would put it on, you know, uh, some big fast connection and we'd be able to, you know, download uh, or we'd be able to to release the the videos to sixty thousand people, and then the next episode was two hundred thousand. Then it got uh, you know up to eight hundred thousand downloads on our videos. So you know it grew episode to episode, and at some point we're like, hey, this could be a, a full time thing because uh, people started asking us about the t shirts in the show, and so we ended up selling t shirts to support the show, and uh, fans would buy our t shirts, come to our screenings. You know, we did a live screening. Episode nine was our first live screening back in two thousand six, I believe. And, uh, you know, 800 people showed up to the Bloor Cinema in Toronto. Uh, you know, we were all just blown away. Like, you know, we couldn't sell the tickets fast enough because we had no logistics. And, you know, <laughs> the stars came out on stage and everyone was like, oh, my God, it's them. And we're like, oh, my God, it's you. <laughs> like, you're not you just exist. a number. Yeah, you're not just the number of downloads on a, you know, on a report <laughs> on some. You're actually human beings that have made your own Purona's mm. flags and have all your shirts that you bought from our online store and never, you know, celebrating the homage and all that. So it was a really great experience to kind of grow the show from from the ground up. Um, and yeah, that's that's how Purona's happened. Like I said, this was before uh, YouTube. So we used BitTorrent, for example, it was another technology that came together that allowed us to reach the hundreds of thousands of people that would download our show day one. And uh, so it would be me in my dorm room, you know, seeding a file, one person seeding and to see it grow from there, mm. everyone downloading, counting up the percentages on their download and, you know, everyone watching it in IRC and talking about the show as they were watching it through for the first time, commenting on it, quoting it. And, you know, so you'd see this big event whenever there was a new episode release that was right. really interesting. Now it's like, Yawn, oh, a new YouTube video. I'll check it out later, like whatever. <laughs> right. Like, I'll, I think I'm subbed to their channel. I don't know. Oh, oh, look, Facebook. Oh, Twitter. Oh, you know, there's lots of stuff to do online that we're competing with these days that, you know, wasn't around back in the day. But yeah, it was a big special event that, you know, it felt special and that not many people were doing this and that not many people had taken all the technological elements together and to make it happen. But now, nowadays, it's, you know, you could just pick up your phone press two buttons and then press two more buttons and there's mm. a video on YouTube. And, you know, so it's, it was, it was a romantic time, I guess mm -hmm. I'd say <laughs> having the lack of technology to properly stream video. And just kind of the term viral gets thrown around so much. It's become kind of this bastardized marketing term, but the growth that pure owners experience really was viral. I think there's no other way to put it. Yeah. Well, there was, you know, we'd never spent a cent on advertising. So it was entirely organic sharing and viral growth. And people used to come to our website and check for news or check, you know, we'd have on a release, we'd have, you know, over 100,000 people come to our website. And people don't do that anymore. You know, if you have a web series or if you have a series of videos that are going viral or going popular, people don't go to the website. They go to the YouTube uh, video. They go to the Facebook video or whatever. Or they, they don't actually 
nobody checks a website religiously anymore. You subscribe to it mm. and you wait for it to come to you or you like it on Facebook. You There's more of a focus on waiting for content to grab you and pull you in, into viewing it than there is on, you know, oh, it's my responsibility to go and see if there's this new video that I really like, you know. Right. So it was a different time in that sense too that lots of people would be waiting for the new Pure Knowledge episode and checking up on its existence and all that. Now, your character in Pure Knowledge, Kyle, was a film student, but you didn't actually go to film school. You were actually a going to school for physics? Uh, yeah, so I didn't go to film school, but I, I was doing a doctorate in physics at the time when we started the show. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's totally opposite. Wow, that's really weird. That's that you would be studying, you know, science and then doing film and total opposites, people often say. But really, um, you know, the technical aspects of filmmaking and digital photography, mm. you know, lenses and optics is, was what I was doing. You know, I understood the tools, but of course it doesn't mean that you understand the art. Um, but you know, I watched a lot of movies when I was, you know, going to school and my number one hobby was filmmaking music production. You know, I had a recording studio in my dorm room, you know, a couple nice preamps, compressors and some mics and, you know, a bunch of keyboard instruments. And I'd always look up for friends that, Oh, you play saxophone. Come on, let's do some recording. <laughs> so I'd always be doing this stuff as a hobby and making, you know, skit videos with my friends and that kind of thing. Um, but it really helped, you know, having the technical, know how to you know do digital filmmaking on your home pc because that was you know it's it's easier nowadays of course anyone can get into it um but you know the software was rudimentary back then right and so were the tools uh you know the compression tools that we would have you'd have to have you know four different pieces of software to be able to in your workflow where now it's you know windows movie maker or you know iMovie uh is all in one you know one click export and upload and all that but um yeah anyway it was um you know, studying physics was something I've always wanted to do, figure out how things work and have a mathematical background. And it's really helped me in, in my work doing film, actually. So, you know, I got into, into photography shortly after we started Pure Onage. And, um, you know, there's a lot of technical aspects mm. there that, uh, you know, can help you. And, and of course, you know, audio production, like I do the audio uh, mastering and mixing and sound design on space janitors. Uh, so that experience with that has, has helped quite a bit as mm. well. Yeah, I, I'm an audio guy, so I can definitely uh, identify with that. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so how did you meet and come to collaborate with uh, Davin Langell? It seems like you guys have worked together closely for some time, from Pironage to now with Space Janitors. Mm -hmm. Well, Davin was a guy, I, I met him at school. So when I was still in physics, um, he was studying law. Mm. And um, he was a career student. He had been to two universities, already done three degrees at the time. Boy. And he always like, you know, he would always do fun filmmaking stuff with his university buddies. And, you know, so he, would, he was another like sort of student slash filmmaker at the time um, that didn't study film. So he had made six ninja movies at the time. Yellow Ninja, they're called. And uh, so, you know, he was sort of this epic comedy action type movie that he would write and direct and star in. So he was interested in that kind of stuff. So I said, hey, you know, we should we should talk about what we're doing here. And I think the first thing he did working uh, with us was he directed a fight scene, the keyboard fight scene from episode four of Pironage. We're like, hey, you do a lot of action fight stuff, so why don't you take over directing for this scene? So yeah, that was the first thing he did uh, in collaboration with us. And uh, yeah, after that, um, you know, we've sort of started a company together, and we've we've been trying to get uh, web production in you know developing the industry of web series production and web projects. Uh, that we've been working on these past couple of years. So, um, yeah, yeah, he's kind of uh, in the Toronto web scene as well. So 
for space janitors, you kind of touched on it, but for those that haven't seen it, what is it and what is it all about? What's the show in a nutshell? What's your pitch? Okay, well, it depends on what level you're talking about. <laughs> so quickest way to describe it is it's two guys that clean up on the Death Star. And one guy wants to be somebody, wants to be somebody special, thinks he could be running the, the place. And, but he finds out some secret about his past that is uh, compromising in his ideals and beliefs. And so, yeah, that's one way to, to talk about it. There's, you know, there's, there's the whole concept of a social group and this, this society that um, it's the year 2411. Uh, in season one. So what is technology going to be like? We've kind of taken sort of the 70s, 80s view of the future uh, Hmm. a little bit in terms of the costume design and the technology. And, you know, so there's a lot of like throwback 80s futuristic stuff in there. But then there's, you know, contemporary future, you know, the way that people look forward and, and think about the future. You know, the idea that Facebook can tell you who, who you're probably going to be friends with. It's like, oh, do you Hmm. probably know this person based on Based on what? Based on all of the clicks that you've ever done, you know, based on every message that you've ever written and all the keywords. And you might have mentioned this person and, you know, they mine so much data and know so much about you. I just envision this future where a computer can tell you who you're going to be friends with. I I hadn't connected that idea to Facebook, but when you mention it that way, it makes so much sense. It's really fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, imagine, you know, you can imagine a future where everyone wears Google Glass and everything's recorded and data mined and your whole life. And then a computer can analyze this and give you insights that you don't even know and tell you what's best for you and tell you what you feel like for lunch today based on your blood sugar, based on your past meals, based on, you know, because it knows what you order, because it heard you take the order and knows what restaurant you're at because of GPS. And <laughs> there's a funny idea that, that computers and machines will be able to make decisions that are typically associated with your own free will and your own best judgment. And so, you know, this whole idea that a computer can tell you who your friends are and who you're going to be happy with and get along with was one of the integral parts of the society that values order and power above all else, which is what we're doing to make a case for the empire. You know, I wanted the the empire and space janitors to be not just, hey, we're bad and, you know, uh, we're bad. We're the bad guys. No, no, no. We're we just have a different set of values mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is a different society. And I want to make a case for that. You know, I want to show how the propaganda works in their society. I want to show, and it's very subtle. So that's the second level of explanation of space changes is a portrait of political and other forms of zealotry. You know, so you know, how do you have the empire functioning when you know they're not bad people inherently? It's a huge population, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you justify that? How do you make a case for it? And that's kind of one of the things that excite me about the project. Uh, but ultimately, it's a comedy. It's it's a comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's first and foremost a comedy, of course. You know, I guess you wouldn't. I, I didn't ever mention that in my first five minutes of explaining what the show is. But yeah, it's 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 a comedy and it's a dark comedy. I kind of aimed for this sort of comedic tone of like, uh, well, maybe not so much like Louis C.K.'s show or Girls, but. You know, that's my goal. I'm huge fans of those shows. But it's it's a bit more sketch comedy sensibilities. Our other writer is a, is a sketch comic, Andy Hull. And there's, you know, they're all comedic performers, most of the cast. And um, yeah, so yeah, it's definitely a comedy. People, you know, you, you will laugh. You will laugh. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you will cry, maybe. <laughs> Where do you draw inspiration from? I mean, for me, I see connections to, you know, Red Dwarf or, or Space Quest. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I played, I think, four out of however many, six or seven of the Space Quest games. Uh-huh. And, you know, I grew up with Space Quest. One of my first games I ever played was Space Quest 1, the original CGA, you know, 
my CGA monitor. So I played that. Um, and it, you know, it, it lampoons science fiction and combines all, you know, elements, um, in a hilarious way. Um, but I haven't seen Red Dwarf. I haven't seen a full episode. A lot of people say, "Oh, it's Red uh, Red Dwarf." You know, when, when, whenever someone launches a new web series, there's a big tirade of people saying, "Oh, I like this better when it was X." Oh, this is a <laughs> ripoff of this. It's like think of something original that's just like this. And then, so they do that for about a month, and then you never hear of it again. But yeah, during that month of a whole bunch of people pointing out how my show was derivative uh, from show X, Y, and Z. There was a lot of people talking about Red Dwarf, and I'm well, I haven't seen that. So yeah, you can't rip it off if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I find it really interesting that, you know, you started on the web with Pure Onage, where you had total creative control, then Pure Onage made the jump to television, and you, you know, now you had to deal with a network, but now you're back on the web doing the whole independent thing again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, the, the deal with uh, web versus TV, it was an amazing experience. It was, you know, it's a very rare experience to have the opportunity to, to produce a television show. Yeah. Um, you know, so we had, I guess, almost no budget. You know, we were selling enough shirts to keep us going, to keep a staff, you know, supporting Pironage, making other content like for the Game Army and whatever else. And that was great. But uh, when we had the TV show, our budget was a TV show budget. So, you know, it was 100 times the money that we would spend on the web series. Uh, is it a hundred times as funny? I don't know that, but it's it's a different product. You know, it's a lot more polished in in a lot of ways, and um, it was produced a lot uh, very quickly uh, compared to our web production rate because money can do that. As soon as you have money to throw at things, problems get solved, people get to work, and products get made. So, um, you know, we actually kept the mockumentary style, which can be produced on the cheap, but um, you know, we had a television series budget. So, you know, there were some odd moments where uh, we used to do walk and talks, we call it, where Jeremy would rant to the camera and I'd walk backwards on the sidewalk and film him and it would be relevant to the story or plot and we'd push the story forward. And that was, you know, so it, on the web series days, it was two people and one guy with a camera, one actor, Jared Kale, playing Jeremy, walking and talking. No makeup, no wardrobe, no one else. On the TV series, we had a few of those exact same shots, um, only... Uh, the street was rented out. There were police <laughs> blocking off the entrance to the street. There was a craft truck. There was a camera truck. There was a wardrobe truck. There was a grip truck. There were 40 people standing around, grips, ADs, third AD. Um, there was home base, which had, you know, trailers like offsite. You know, it was just crazy how, and then it's the same thing. It's a guy walking and talking in front of a camera. And it was just like, wow. Like how, you know, that was the moment where we're like, maybe we could do this a bit more efficiently. So that's you know, why just, television is so expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's expensive, but you know, it's a machine that you build up and you get ball rolling and cogs turning and machinery going and you have to do things a certain way to fit into this machine. And that was, you know, there's a certain way of doing things and it guarantees a product in a certain way on a certain budget. And, and so it makes sense, but you know, it, it was handy to have a set built and you know, the Jeremy's basement was a set in a school gymnasium that we turned into a studio. And, you know, then there was the cafe that was a set in a gymnasium right across from the basement. And it was really di a different feel. I think it made a really very different product, but it made it a TV show. Um, a lot of people, a lot of the hardcore fans didn't like the tone of the show 
because it, it felt like a TV show. It was written like a TV show, structured like a TV show. You know, there's a three-act structure and something happens at the end of the first act before the commercial break that raises the stakes. And, you know, there was all, there's all these story structures just from a writing perspective that really uh, make it feel like television, whereas the web series was very off-the-cuff and organic and unstructured just because we didn't know the structure of television, 22-minute <laughs> storytelling. Hmm. But, yeah, there are very, very rigid structures to writing, for example. And then we had four different directors for the eight episodes, two episodes each that were seasoned television directors um, that were, you know, getting it done in a TV sense. You know, it wasn't the, it was very different from the way I directed the web series, but that was what we were doing. We were making a television show. We weren't, we weren't extending the Pironage web series. So it was a vastly different experience. And then of course, 80% of the paperwork and 80% of, of the efforts, you know, in terms of, you know, stuff on paper and getting things done was non-creative. So, you know, there's the whole financing aspects, there's the production aspects, there's everyone's, all the 40 people have to have deal memos and contracts and all this, you know, behind the scenes work that was just, you know, you have an army that you raise up in a few days that start getting it done. And it's, you know, whereas on Pironage, the web series, 90, 98% of the paperwork is creative. You know, it's writing the scripts, getting the ideas, getting them on camera and all that kind of stuff. So, it was really interesting to see that machine happen and to see how traditional television is done. With Space Janitors, it's not a mockumentary uh, web series. It's, so we produce it more like a television show. We have a studio. We have camera, camera people. We use a slate. We use uh, you know, continuity people because of the nature of the project. It has to be done more like a TV show. So we actually have a, a larger crew of, of 15 to 20 people on set at any time. And we are a union production. So that adds a lot of paperwork to for the actors union. Mm. And uh, we couldn't produce space janitors. Had we not had the experience of right, yeah. television show. In some ways it's almost like the pure owners TV show was kind of your film school. Exactly. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, I, I guess you'd say the web series was sort of, fiddling around with the tools of storytelling, video storytelling, and we did pretty well. But then, of course, there's a lot more aspects in the traditional business that I learned going to sort of film school, doing producing the television uh, series. So, yeah, that was it was very educational. And uh, it's also the kind of education that you can't get in film school. I'd say it was probably mm. more valuable than film school. Right. Uh, because, you know, I've we hire interns that have come from film programs and from Ryerson and from University of Toronto. And it's their first time on a real set and they're learning, you know, like crazy. So on the whole film school note too, um, you know, when, when we, we were in negotiations for a number of years to get the TV show done. And um, it wasn't until we hired some executive producers to really push the project through and, and get us a green light on the television show. But I was in a meeting uh, one day with, um, with the brass at Showcase Television and our executive producer uh, said to me, oh yeah, so yeah, we were just chatting. She said, yeah, Jeff, you went to film school, right? And I said, I said, no, no, I didn't go to film school. I went to physics school for nine years. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, oh, really? Oh, and it was at that moment, you know, we had the green light on the television show. And I realized they hired me to, to produce this show and our team to produce this show without ever looking at my resume or caring, wow. about, my resume or caring about whether I went to film school or not. It was all how I presented myself in person. Huh. And what others said about me who had worked with me and, was, you know, it's such a, you know, driven by your, how you present yourself, basically, that nobody actually looked at my resume on paper or cared about my previous work. Now, mind you, uh, part of the reason why they didn't care is because they assumed I had no experience, and that's why they hired seasoned directors. You know, I, I, was, hmm. I was never 
my hat was never in the ring to direct the television series because I had zero experience directing actual television. So it was far too much of a risk, uh, straight up risk for that. But yeah, so, you know, it was really interesting that, you know, don't think, oh, okay, I'm graduating film school. Now I have a, a feather in my cap and I can go sell a TV show. It's like, well, you know, they, they don't really care about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of other things they care about. And one is the experience of your team, and, uh, you know, your whatever work or whatever your special thing is that is going to get you a TV show. Um, and it's got to be pretty darn special. Hmm. So many web series, at least that, that I've seen, are set, you know, modern day where they can get real world locations. So what unique challenges does uh, producing a space series pose? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess one of the challenges is it's a very visual effects heavy show and i have davin langell to credit for all the visual effects he's the he's the supervisor on on that end so he's slaving away as we speak uh, (laughs) pulling a green screen putting in a planet in the background you know moving spaceships around um extending hallways making people walk around in a cafeteria in the background from a bunch of stock footage he shot you know he's doing all of this because we have to make this seem like a vast 10,000 person space station, right. right? But we have no money to, to hire extras, 10, extras. <laughs> right? It's like that would blow our budget right away. So on, on a tiny, tiny budget, there's some episodes that feel like it's a big space station. A lot of people, things happening. And then it's, you see five actors names in the credits. There are literally only five people mm. on camera, the whole episode, but we, you know, so it's a challenge. You have to use establishing shots or use people in the background or use, you know, sound design of a busy cafeteria and try to make it feel big. I think if, if it were a TV show budget, we would have, you know, we would be able to nail that and make it feel like a really big station and, and have sort of larger scope on, on the whole thing. But I think we've done a pretty good job on the web series of getting this sort of, you know, idea that there's a big space station populated by a lot of people. But yeah, I, I think, you know, we only have a, f- a few sets. Like we, we ride around maybe three or four locations and try to keep it, you know, Mike and Darby's quarters, the cafeteria, the hallway. Um, and we try to vary those up and make them seem different with computer graphics and put different things in the background. And so, the, you know, getting that scope up on a low budget is really difficult. Mm-hmm. But thanks to, you know, homebrew visual effects, with <laughs> after effects on a PC, it's all possible nowadays, yeah. which is amazing. You know, we're doing ILM type stuff from the 70s, you know, with our home computers which is incredible yeah it really is and yeah other than that i guess you got to be quick you have to we have nine days to shoot the whole season and uh you know you got to keep moving and 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 you know it's not like we have the budget you know it's a a very low budget show and it's not like we have the budget to go over time or make mistakes because then guess what you're now you have to find twenty thousand dollars somewhere if it was a mistake right (laughs) (laughs) Now, that actually kind of brings me to a, a, another question. As we're recording this, you are in the midst of a fundraising campaign for season three on Indiegogo. Come on, let's make this happen, people. But where does all the money go? I mean, producing for the web is less expensive than television, but a series like this still isn't cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, you know, the money goes to wardrobe people, to wardrobe, to sound recorders, to makeup people and the actors, of course who are all working below their rates. You know, we have grips that usually work on bigger shows that are, you know, used to being paid more. But hey, we have a fun set. It's a fun show. People like it. They like, you know, working, getting to know people. So they all, you know, everybody working on this show is working below their regular rates uh, in the off season. You know, we shoot in the off season when it's not busy for them. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, you know, nobody's getting rich off of this. Everybody's just, you know, it's barely sustainable. 
It's mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, we can keep eating and paying our rent and whatever else <laughs> expenses and we can make the show. And that's great. That is an amazing um, opportunity to make art for a living, right? It's definitely not something that everybody has. So, you know, we work really hard too. Like, uh, and I think the, the people working most below their rates and making, you know, almost nothing per hour is, is Davin and myself. You know, we do all the post-production well, not all the post-production, we do most of the post-production uh, with the editing, the sound design, the visual effects, the color timing. Uh, and that's, um, that's so, you know, more work than the than an actual shooting. Oh, yeah. It's 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 months and months. Especially of, for of a work. show like this. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's definitely a, a difficult show in terms of post-production. You know, that's where the money goes. And we have various sources of funding um, for season two. Uh, Geek and Sundry was part of our financing. Uh, we, there's a, a fund called the IPF, which is an independent production fund that is actually a Canadian fund that funds web series. And then, of course, tax credit financing and all this other fund paperwork that you can do. Then the government will support you with giving you money back for your taxes that you spent on the production. So, you know, it's like I said, there's there's a lot more behind the scenes paperwork than the Pure web series. <laughs> it's not easy to finance a web series like this, right? So Definitely. that's why you see most web series are hey, a guy or a guy or girl in their apartment, and yeah. you know it's their actual apartment, and you know they have a friend with a camera and all that, and then you you can really save a lot of money that way. But Space Generators is an expensive show. Um, You're doing something a lot more ambitious than most, you know, other series. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a very ambitious series. And to some degree, I, I'm kicking myself and Davin's kicking himself for, you know, all, all the hard work we're putting into this. But at the end of the day, uh, after this show, I think any other show is going to be no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Trial by fire. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Geek and Sundry. How did all of that come about? Uh, so um, every once in a while, I'm in touch with other web producers online. So, I you know, I watch... You know, people like Jeff Lewis is five minute comedy hour that I think is hilarious. And, uh, you know, Sandy Parikh, who uh, is in the Guild and also does um, Save the Supers. And of course, Felicia Day, the Guild and her other her flog and other other series that she produces. So when we started Space Janitors, I sent them an email I'm like, hey, guys, yeah, I'm working on this. You know, good to see you working on that. Uh, we're kind of this web series community, I guess. And and after a couple months, uh, you know, we released a few episodes. Felicia Day wrote back and said, hey, you know, uh, I'm looking into bringing other shows to my channel and I looked at Space Janitors and it might be suitable. So she put us in touch with uh, Kim and Sherry, their co-executive producers for their channel. And uh, yeah, they turned, they ended up liking the show and we wouldn't have made a second season if it wasn't for their help, hmm. uh, essentially. So yeah, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. That's really interesting. It's just like, oh, hey, I'm doing this show. I, th- I think you might like it to what it is now. <laughs> it's just you never know what'll happen if you don't ask, if you don't... Uh... Just try and put your name out there with people. Oh, yeah. It's definitely always good to communicate and let people know what you're doing. And there's opportunities out there that uh, you, would be, you would be missing otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With Pure Ownage, you really were a trailblazer as far as the whole web series thing. But now with Space Janitors, the space has become a lot more crowded. So how do you stand out? Oh, well, <laughs> that's, that's, if I knew how to answer that concisely, uh, you know, <laughs> I'd probably be making uh, three different web series, <laughs> getting millions of views. But uh, it is more and more difficult, in fact. And like I talked about that whole going out and grabbing your audience actively now, mm. you know, uh, people sit back and they wait for stuff to come to them. They're not seeking it out as actively. So that's a, a, a change in the landscape. You know, I, I used to say concentrate on shareability. 
But uh, that's a difficult thing too. You have to understand why people share things, why they hit that share button, why they post it on Facebook. Because that's the, really the only way to grow an audience. You're not going to be making enough money off of a web series on YouTube to, to justify even advertising it. Unless it's a seed advertisement move and then you, know, you grow from there. But um, yeah, it's really difficult to stand out. You see a lot of the types of content um, that is on YouTube now. And it's, a lot of it's geared towards a young audience. And it's the type of thing that's sustainable off of a YouTube paycheck is something that you can pump out three videos a week or right. one video a week and get two million views on each of those videos. So, you know, Space Janitors, a scripted show, is not that kind of thing. You cannot do one scripted show a week and be getting a million views and getting enough money to be producing that. Um, you know, we do eight a year. Straight up YouTube paycheck, it's not going to be sustainable. I don't think that. You know, unfortunately, I'm not sure how shareable our show is. You know, we've had a lot of great comments, a lot of great feedback. People love the series, but, you know, it's not the kind of audience. Like a, our demo was skewed older than the average YouTube dem demographic. Hmm. So, you know, do people over 30, for example, do they share things on Facebook or is it sort of the younger people that share things? So I see a lot of the, a lot of the content that sort of has attention come to it is geared towards a younger audience. Uh, there's a guy, PewDiePie, P-E-W-D-I-E-P-I-E, -E -E, I think is his YouTube channel is, who got up to 5 million subscribers in six months. I don't know if these numbers are accurate. They're just a ballpark. Um, but uh, it's it's an example of the kind of content that I think is is shareable by a young audience. Um, I think we'll see a lot more of that. You know, Freddie W was a trailblazer as far as a YouTuber. He's sort of the go-to mm -hmm. example mm -hmm. for, you know, this is how you do YouTube. But then now the, the market's sort of saturated with right. people doing video game humor with visual effects and skits and all that kind of stuff, especially at a lot of people are, are at Freddie W's level of quality, which is insanely high. You know, you know, it's, it's hard to say, what are you going to go out and do on, <laughs> on the internet and get attention? Well, the one thing everyone has in common is it's their passion, right? right. It's something they're passionate about. So, which is, you know, the, the basic advice that an artist gives an, another artist, right? So nothing, not much has changed in that respect, but I think that is the, the degree to which I am able to answer the question at this point. <laughs> I, I do admit I find it a little interesting um, that it hasn't been promoted as, you know, from the people that brought you pure ownage, but it kind of stands on its own. I mean, I mean, for me, when I first watched it, I had no idea of the connection until created by Jeff Lapierre and Davin Langell. It's like, wait, what? That's 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 pure ownage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. You know, we haven't sort of invoked the pure ownage audience. We found that that. Pure fans, the hardcore fans, they want pure ownage, you know, the classic pure owners that they grew up with or whatever. And I didn't really think it would be a thing that would be a natural transition for a lot of people to like this Space Janitor's content because they like pure ownage content. It's, they're very different shows, but it just represents a different passion of mine, you know, I guess, uh, and Davin's is that, uh, you know, we, we made this, this Space Janitor's show independently, not with any kind of idea of migrating an audience from one show to another, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so uh, we haven't really promoted it in that sense of, you know, the follow up to Pure Orange or anything like that, because I think mostly that would, <laughs> it might backfire and, and, mm. and be a lot of disappointment, or maybe it might work. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of Pure Orange fans that talk about Space Janitors, too, that, that like the show and, and all that. But um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, when we go back to Pure Orange the movie, which is the next <laughs> project I'm on after this. So we're going back to the roots for that one. Mm -hmm. How has the creative process and the production process differed for Space Janitor Season 2 uh, from Season 1? Uh, it was fairly similar. You know, Season 1 we shot on two cameras, two 5D Mark IIs. 
uh, we have a red camera for season two. So our workflow has changed up for a bit camera wise. Um, you know, we sort of filled in the gaps, the difficult gaps. We had a few crew tweaks, what people's jobs were. You know, we had no first assistant director in the season one. And, you know, so minor, minor behind the scenes, stuff like that. But um, I think um, we wanted to get the writing and, and the cuts punchier, tighter. Um, I've been cutting season two really tight. Uh, you know, I, I let season one breathe a bit in the edit, which is less like typical YouTube content and less like television nowadays. I was mm. sort of going for like a, you know, every filmmaker loves seventies cinema, so you know that's when they let it breathe. And but TV is tight nowadays. Web series are especially tight. So you know, now when I go back, I watch them of season one. I'm like, whoa, this is boring. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think tighter and punchier. We've added a new cast member uh, in season two. Uh, simply because uh, one cast member from season one who plays L, her name is Tess, uh, was not available for the shoot. So we just sort of wrote her out for a season. We'll bring her back in season three if we do that. But uh, yeah, I don't think anything else has changed. We we know the story we wanted to tell. We're, we're continuing it. Um, I won't talk about any spoilers here if you haven't seen it. But um, yeah, we're really looking forward. You know, We've also brought the scope up in the visual effects based on our year of experience last year. We have a few other team members that have done some amazing visual effects, especially for, for 205. There's some parts that really blow me away. I'm like, really? This is a web series? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's some really world-class guys that we've found who are who are actually fans and, and asked to help out with it. And you know, they're like, hey, I do compositing and, and this and that, and can I help out? And we're like, sure. And then they send us work that just blows us away. So done a little bit of crowdsourcing there that's really mm. been great. I guess that's the great thing, especially, you know, this time of year during the summer where you have a lot of talented professionals, they might not have anything to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, people work remotely too. It's not like they're coming to Toronto and coming to our office and working there. It's like, they just, they're in their home. They send us a Dropbox link to some files and we download them, we put them in our show and right. it's, it's all just global and it's really uh, great to have the internet, huh? <laughs> you said it. So Pure Ownage was a mockumentary and Space Janitors is a parody is comedy over you know drama what interests you most as a filmmaker uh i'm interested in both comedy and drama mm. we've combined a lot of dramatic elements in space janitors true but um i think for the medium i think if you're going to make a web series comedy is the way to go i think that's mm. what dominates on even some of the bigger even the hollywood dramatic web series i don't know you know how well they've done or uh, drama on the web on youtube there's a few projects. There's one great Canadian web series called Out With Dad, which is a drama. But it has wit, it has humor in it as well. But I think, I think my go-to is comedy, but I do have a few feature films in mind that are dramatic. But, of course, that's a totally different medium. It's a totally different art form. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, my dramatic ideas would not work as a web series. So uh, I think that's why I, I go to comedy. And comedy's fun. You know, I, lo I know a lot of comedian and comedic performers in Toronto. So, you know, that's sort of our go-to thing. I guess in that case, you kind of already have a, a talent pool to draw on then. Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of funny people in Toronto that perform at the clubs and, you know, we know them well. And uh, there's a great comedy community here that is really, I think, underused on an international mm. scale. I'm, I'm glad there's a lot of web series popping up in Toronto because, you know, there's world-class performers that are, you know, doing commercials and that are just in this, you know, they get a speaking role in this, this dramatic series here and there. And I, th I think it's great. Like Space Janitors allows us to get some performances out to the world, you know, like Chris Gibbs and, you know, of course, all of our leads, Ebony Rosen. And there's a lot of people that are spend a lot of their time, you know, busting their ass in the, in, in the comedy clubs in Toronto. And, you know, it's great that they can get out there, get, you know, 100,000 people watching them on a web series. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know at least in the beginning, Pure Onich was 
largely improv. How does that differ uh, for you as a filmmaker and a director versus uh, the Pyronich TV show or Space Janitors, which is a lot more scripted? Yeah, so it, it really made a different product, especially with the Pyronich. You know, we would have loose skeleton scripts, we called them. So we'd have a concept that Jeremy would talk about or this concept would, in this scene would go to this concept and then we'd, we'd leave this scene. But it was very organic. It was very, especially when you're working with good improvisers, mm-hmm. it was really organic. And then you can go in the editing room and just cut the best bits together and it ended up being a nice flowing dialogue between Jeremy and Kyle a lot of the time. So you have that post-selection advantage um, it doesn't have to be gold in one take improvised, right? So it was like having improvisation without having the rough edges of improvisation. Hmm. So in that sense, that's how we made it so organic. But with uh, scripting television, it was very different. You know, every single thing you see, every single word, everyone says exactly how you write it. So we had to learn how to write for television. So our, our showrunner, Derek Harvey, and our, our, our story editor, Mark Steinberg, they would help us out and, you know, kind of teach us how to write TV, like TV 101, like, oh, guys, you can't do that. Like, you know, and, and then there was even scripting things production wise that was difficult. Like we had one script that was like, oh, oh a baby in a crib with like Space Invader uh, stuff above them. And, you know, and then the baby's crying and it's baby Jeremy, you know, we, in one of the, the TV episodes. And then, and then our line producers are like, guys, baby's going to be this much money. The mom's got to be there. Uh. You know, too expensive to have a baby there. So. <laughs> The sound of a baby and, and you see a crib, you know, we had to learn how to write around a, hmm. a budget, even though it was a TV budget. We were told a lot of times that's too expensive. And it's like, really? It's like, well, that's because you, know, you have 40 people on, on set for a walk and talk. The money disappears really quick. So <laughs> you can't afford a baby in this scene. Um, so, yeah, just writing around a budget and understanding the production machinery, because if you write a purple Ferrari, they will get a purple Ferrari. Like it, you'll just show up one day and there will be the car. And it's like, well, I, I just meant a sports car. No, no, you said purple Ferrari. You got <laughs> had to get it, you know. So it literally, you write something, it becomes reality because a huge body of machinery and a whole bunch of people make it happen for you. So you have to be very specific in everything in the scripts and every word because the actor will say it exactly like that, exactly those words. So, you know, one technique when you're script writing is to read it out loud to yourself in the voice of the characters whenever, and then you find out, oh, that's a horrible line tripping over this line when I'm writing it aloud. So there's a lot of tricks like that that you learn when you're writing a real script for a real show, quote unquote, real show, I should say. So as someone who's been on both sides of it, between web and TV, uh, do you have any advice for someone who, you know, has an idea and they want to go out and and produce a web series today? Oh, yeah. Well, the advice is always uh, you, you just have to go do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about what you have access to. Think about what makes it special. You know, if you know somebody that has a, a restaurant or a convenience store in, in Kevin Smith's ah, case, yeah. right? You know, it's like, oh, you can do it, shoot at night. And then so you make up this idea that, okay, the, uh, the, the windows are broken or whatever. So he, he can't open that, that shutter, right? That was because he's shooting at night and he can't show that it's night outside, right? <laughs> so, you know, find a workaround, get it done, just get, get that camera. You know, get the cast together, get the script. You've got to get down and start writing the script and finish it. You know, a lot of people are talking about making a web series. They talk about this. They're like, oh, man, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, they send out emails talking about people, how they're going to do mm, it. And they never but, actually but do like, it. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like, where's the script? You know, get the script. There's nothing holding you back from the script except for the time input or your creative juices. Get them flowing. You know, <laughs> you have notepad.exe, right? Go. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's all you need. So yeah, there's that aspect of just go out and do it. And then, you know, guess what? If it's your first web series, it's probably not going to be the best thing you're going to ever make. 
you're going to learn so much doing it and then make another one, then make another one. And you'll find yourself, wow, you know, after a year, you'll be looking back. Okay, that was some noob stuff I was doing. <laughs> I, just, I, didn't know, I didn't know about, you know, how to properly adjust exposure for the camera. I didn't know, you know, how to, how to light properly. I didn't know how to do an audio mix. Or, so, yeah, there's a lot of things you'll learn if you just go out and start doing mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And I guess getting back to what you're saying about Kevin Smith, I guess some of those restrictions and limitations really inspire creativity that you wouldn't normally get. Oh, it's true. Yeah. You know, you, you find ways to work around and then it ends up adding a, a certain spice to the project. You know, there's in, in one of our season two of the web series, Pure Orange, we were going to go shoot at this sushi restaurant and then it was closed because it had burned down. So, okay, well, we just write that in the script. Okay, so Jeremy wants to go and it's just burned down. It adds to his day of, of, of horrors, his bad day he's having. It added a certain spice. You know, it was like there was a big sign out saying, our restaurant burned down, sorry, we're closed. It, it was as though in television land, you would write that in, you would have an art department person make up that sign. You'd rent out the <laughs> restaurant to close their doors for that shot. It would be a really expensive thing right, to have a closed, right. burnt out restaurant, right? You'd have to dress it with all burning things inside the restaurant, you know? So it was, it, it adds spice in, in the web series and, and Hey, it costs nothing to add that. So you mentioned the pure ownage movie and that you're going to be shooting that this summer. Is there anything you can tell me about it or anything about it that you can tease for those longtime pure ownage fans? Oh, <laughs> I don't want to do any spoilers. People will get mad, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's going to own, it's going to be old school. And yeah, we've had some, we have a lot of interest from a lot of people. That's all. It's, I think that's all I can say. Okay. Okay. So it's time for rapid fire. Reaction time is a factor. So don't think too much. Answer with whatever comes to mind and feel free to qualify why. Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, Star Trek. Kirk or Picard? Uh, Picard. Yeah. TNG is the way to go. TNG is just like season three the writing got so good Mm. and they fell into their characters and like curse got that bravado and that leadership and that charisma but picard has such a nobility about it picard's more of a real leader that i would actually follow oh yeah oh yeah and there's some great moments Hmm. mac or pc oh pc for sure yeah i've had i've had both and you know what i'm a pc guy since early days of dos fair enough Robots, pirates, or zombies? Uh, robots, for sure. They get things done for you. And you can- <laughs> Xbox, PlayStation, or PC gaming? Assuming you actually get to do any gaming anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, and PC gaming. I think uh, Fallout 3 was my favorite single-player experience in recent times. I'm doing Bioshock Infinite right now. I'm not all the way through, so I can't compare those two. But, man, uh, League of Legends, StarCraft II, you know, oh, PC gaming is definitely the way to go. Mm. I'm a PC gamer at heart, so I approve of that message. <laughs> right. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Oh, I think, uh, I think time manipulation. <laughs> I think pausing time. For, for and, someone like you, definitely, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> With all the yeah. work you're putting into the shows, it's like there's not <laughs> enough hours in the day. It's like, yeah, that would be pretty convenient. <laughs> except with me i'd probably be like you know when i i, I turned 50 i'd be like dude you look 70 i'll be like i know <laughs> oh yeah there is if that's, if that's yeah. how the mechanics work in this hypothetical time universe if someone wrote a book about you what might the title be huh i i don't know that, that one yeah I, I don't know if i would stand out enough to have a book written about me <laughs> Or maybe you were to write a book about yourself, you know, a, a memoir. 
Huh. In pursuit of ownage. <laughs> Very nice. You so, you know, J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek and is going to be directing the next uh, episode of Star Wars. If you could take over any genre, television, or movie franchise, you know, if they came to you and offered it, hey, will you direct and produce this, what would it be? Oh, man. I don't know. I think maybe I would like to take all the notes and all the production notes and all the people that Stanley Kubrick worked with on his Napoleon film, and I would like to make that happen Hmm. as faithfully to Kubrick's vision as I could possibly produce it. I would love to see that movie. Apparently it's, it's one of the greatest movies that never got produced, but you know, people are still alive that were around when during pre-production, hmm. but yeah, apparently there's a lot of research and a lot of books, read. I'd read all the same books and, you know, read all the notes and all the research and talk to all the people. I would love to see that project happen in, in a, in a faithful Kubrick sense. Interesting. Um, a lot of the people I like to talk to on the show are creative people in some way. So what inspires you creatively? I think uh, what gets me going creatively is uh, something that makes me angry that I think is an absurdity mm. or an injustice that is commonly accepted. And I like to point out you know, to everybody this absurdity. So it's kind of like what Jon Stewart does on The Daily Show. You know, that's absurdity porn. You know, he points out inconsistencies and bad policy and lack of self-consistence in, in governing oftentimes. And, you know, that kind of it's like when I watch Johnson, I'm like, yes, he makes the point. He makes it in a funny way. And the, the Onion does that, too, a lot. It's like the Onion's kind of humor. It's like it's like this. This is ridiculous. We're going to make fun of it. Um, hmm. So I think that's what gets me going a lot of the time is. And, and South Park too, you know, the, the writing process of South Park, uh, if you've ever seen that documentary, Six Days to Air, you know, they start out six days until air, literally. And they're like, okay, what's this episode going to be about? And they have a brainstorming room. And they're like, what made you angry? What's the thing in the news that made you mad that is absurd this week? And then they decide on something and then they make a whole story about it. And that's how they build their script. So I think that they're fueled by sort of the same motivations. Hmm. So what might you say has been the secret to your success? Oh, uh, you know what? I, I think I think a lot of doing, hmm. a lot of getting things done. It's not like I, I had to, you know, light a fire under myself to get it done. It was just, it was my hobby, right, when I started. So it was like, okay, I'm done. I'm, you know, phew, I did enough physics today. Now I can't wait to work on Pironage, you know. It was just being finding something that you're passionate about that motivates you. And, and it's not easy to get, it's not hard to get motivated if you're excited about it. If you're like, wow, I can't wait for people to see this. And having the audience there was really nice too. You know, you're editing this footage for, you know, the 18th straight hour. And you're, you're wondering about the 60,000 people that, out there that are going to mm-hmm. download it in the first hour. And it's like, they're, they want to see this so bad. And I'm excited to show it to them and to make it good and to have it be a memorable experience for them and, and have them laugh and all that. And, you know, I get excited about certain scenes or jokes and I'm like, I can't wait for people to see this. I can't wait to get this out. So that's what gets me going. But I think a lot of, uh, you know, having a technical background, knowing how to, how to do digital video and digital audio, and then just, you know, spending the time to learn more and constantly learn, you know, we, we always explore different things and try different things with the shows that we do. Um, and that way you, you keep learning. You don't want to ever be in a job or a hobby where, you know, you're just grinding out the same old thing and not trying new things. You're not trying to get something done that you've never done before. Mm, definitely. Definitely. 
Well, that is just about it. So where can people go to find more about you and your projects and see your work? Well, uh, you go to uh, spacejanitors.com if you want to watch the Space Janitors show. Um, I don't have a personal website, but I'm on Twitter, G. LaPere on Twitter. So I tweet about all the stuff that I'm doing. And uh, yeah, you know, I have people friend me on Facebook. I always friend them. There's nothing, you know, and I always post stuff and share stuff and my, my photography as well on Facebook. So if you want to check that out, you can be my friend. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for talking with me. You've definitely got some geek cred. Awesome. I appreciate the geek cred stamp. <laughs> well, if you've got any questions, comments, suggestions, or feedback, make your voice heard. Call 818-925-4335 or email geekcred at geekcred.net. You can also like Geek Cred on Facebook or follow at Geek Cred or me at Steve Rickyberg on Twitter. And the show notes and much more information are over at geekcred.net. For Jeff LaPere, I've been Steve Rickyberg, and that's going to do it for me. So until next time, geek on! Geek on!